This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Frameworks are, what, what are some of the things that you've done to train your own uh, and be aware of more of your cognitive biases? Yeah, so I, I think there are. I think the biggest thing is, you know, and, and we don't have the time to, unfortunately, rip through too much of it. And it's clearly a passion of mine. I love talking about it all days. <laughs> but, you know, there is the art of understanding complexity. When I understand complexity, there are certain areas where I will put more effort in. How's it going, Eric? I'm very good. How are you, Sean? Yeah, doing well. Doing well. Excited to get into this uh, conversation with you. We're just talking off here, obviously, about the, uh, the book and kind of the, the basis of this conversation. So yeah, I figured we'll just jump right in, man, and, um, and kind of dig into maybe a bit of your story in terms of how you got into it. Tell, tell people a little bit about your background as well in terms of you know, what, what got you talking about you know, the surfing rogue waves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we were chatting with uh, similar kind of backgrounds in a way, right? So born and raised in, in Canada, uh, had an upbringing in what I would say a very fortunate kind of great family and all that, that fun stuff. And, you know, if we fast forward somewhere along, I guess, the story of my life, I don't know exactly when, uh, I developed this infatuation kind of with the concept of change. So disruption led me down more the academic path, uh, completing my PhD, you know, that was great and all. I was happy with it. It still felt a little kind of incomplete in terms of purpose. So mm. I wrote a book. Uh, you know, the book was born out of a sense of urgency in a way, I guess, right? And kind of this kind of inherent pursuit of purpose. So the foundations of the book are rooted in the, the PhD thesis. But, you know, I created this theoretical framework, which I call the surfing framework, and we'll get into it. And it applies to a lot more than global executives and organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So after, after five years of completing my doctorate, I spent the next couple of years updating a lot of this research and framework to apply to individuals like you and me and those who are also the you know, CEO of their life, the ultimate decision-making uh, decision makers of their life. And the, the timing is what really led me down this path. We've entered this, there was an opening day party, but we're in this fourth industrial revolution, right? And we hear kind of the mis mixed opinions on it. it. I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think it's going to be some of the most exciting time in human history, and we're going to solve and achieve incredible feats. Mm -hmm. But with more risk comes more reward, right? We're going to face the craziest rogue waves of disruption humanity has ever faced. And I'll kind of keep talking through that, and we'll see some of the parallels in here. But this era of technological development is, is fundamentally different than any other time in human history, it's going to come faster than many of us think. There's ethical discussions we should be having to proactively build 
these these mega trends into the world we want. And a lot of these aren't happening at the scales they probably need to be happening. Um, they're key in a lot of ways for us to reshape our industries, our societies, our day-to-day lives. We're going to experience, you know, disruption of not only the previous industrial revolutions where we really disrupted the world around us, we are going to disrupt our biological selves, right? The one things that make us fundamentally human. So we have these linear brains in this exponential world. And that kind of led me to the surfing framework I present in the book as a tool to really equip the readers with practical understandings of how to leverage scientific and technological progress of our near future to create an outlook of this world that's all around better, safer, but more aligned, more importantly, with how you want to define your success or goals and where you want to be. Got it. Yeah. I think a lot of people like to focus on the dark side. It's kind right. of what catches attention. There's something innate about, I think, our the way our human brain works, where we're attracted to things like Black Mirror or iRobot. <laughs> and it seems like a lot of the focus in terms of mainstream media has been around this darkness, right? And it gets people fearful of what's to come and it's catches a lot of eyeballs, but it's not necessarily the best way to help people think about what are the opportunities of the future. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's never been this exponential in terms of new opportunities and, and, and of course the new, the new risks in that sense as well. Um, But yeah, talk to us a little bit about some of the, um, disruptions that you see coming over the next, over this next uh, fourth industrial revolution that you're talking about. Yeah. And the end of the book, I have fun and take a stab at some of these. And again, the whole point of the framework is I don't know what's going to happen when and what order, but we do know some of these things are going to happen. We get very stuck on trying to predict, well, exactly when is this going to happen? We don't know. The different break, they're also interconnected now. We can't decouple any of it, right? And these mm-hmm. amplifications and augmentations in completely different areas might advance another area breakthrough. The change in general can be small and big. So obviously we love the extreme things where, you know, we change our entire lives, but we're, we're also just not noticing all the little changes in our lives, right? Humanity, you and me, we never voted for braces or the internet or IVF or smartphones. They just appeared. They just happened, right? Our, our brains are what most differentiate us from the rest of life on planet. Advancements in these forms of artificial and biological and neurological technologies they should be at the forefront of our discussions. And I think they will continue to redefine kind of our understanding of what it means to be fundamentally human. But there's also all the small things that we can affect and predict to change right in our personal lives and professional lives. And, and the surfing framework works to create you know, a way to understand and navigate this discomfort as we paddle straight into these barrels of disruption, which are ironically key to our adaptation growth success, survival, that the the change is one of the only constant things in our lives and and future, right? And and it parallels very well with waves in the ocean. So instead of being crushed by them, and like you said, right, and scared about them and all, you know, the things that get clicks and makes us watch these shows, the surfing framework walks us through how to surf everything from the daily ripples to the roadways of tomorrow. In, In short, we're really just trying to better position ourselves tomorrow in our personal and professional lives, right? The reality yeah. that looms kind of along the horizon and the distant, you know, of, you know, material sciences and nanotechnology and biotechnology and blockchain and AI and these dozens of other industries that are 
that are colliding, rogue waves will emerge and obliterate life as we know it. Everything, you know, including what it means to be human, will be disrupted, like we talked about. But our decisions and actions today and tomorrow will have some very real consequences in the future. And this this change part, I think, um, it, it is what really intrigued me and a bit of what you're asking. And I mean, I could even ask the question, right, Sean, what, Sean, what do, what do you, Elon Musk, LeBron James, present day organizations and Kelly Slater have in common? You know, it's a loaded question. You're probably thinking, what is this guy? <laughs> Eric's, we've, we've lost him. Eric's gone rogue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the answer, you know, is really that the goal in life and in business is to successfully navigate and, and surf the change we encounter in our daily lives and futures, right? That's a, co- a common goal we all have. One of the problems is that we don't notice change while it's happening. We tend to only notice it after the fact, right? right? Yeah. Suddenly we all have That's... AI voice assistants in our pockets and homes. I don't know. I didn't notice that happening, but here we are. The reality is we'll experience more technological change in the next few years than the previous 100 years, right? And we understand the exponential elements of that. And most of us embrace this technology as a result of previous industrial revolutions without realizing we don't currently have the means to comprehend what's coming next. So, you know, most of us do not notice changes happening, but what if we could notice this change, right? While it was happening. And that's a lot of what the book digs into, right? What if we had a tool that we could use to more optimally position ourselves to take advantage and surf these rogue waves of change emerging in our business and life. And the book's called Surfing Rogue Waves, which hopefully now kind of the parallels have come together as we have all these mega trends, you know, that are going to amplify each other and a rogue wave kind of violently appears out of nowhere, much like, you know, we're seeing the disruption nowadays. Um, And something to note here, I think, and we were chatting about it quick, Sean, is the, the, the problem's connected, but this is different than individualistic peak performance, right? We, we can hack our brains and, and rewire neural, neurochemistry to perform better. And there's great new research coming on that every day. And, and you had some of the best, right? You had Steve um, Kohler on here. I think on one of your previous episodes, I was listening to obviously legendary author yeah. and, and journalist who unpacks peak performance centered around flow and, you know, if, and, and flow state is optimal performance. And that is important, right? That's when you're so dialed in that you're, you're, everything else fades away, right? You're, you're stuck in that moment and we're, we're starting to understand how to put ourselves in flow better. And due to that fundamental shift in our neurochemistry, we understand we're happier and we perform better when our brain produces chemicals like, you know, dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and all that. And when we increase hormones like cortisol, you increase stress levels, right? An example of this yeah. is when you increase stress, you sleep less. When you sleep less, you recover less. When you recover less, you don't perform as well. So although that is equally as important and that has to go on as well, I just felt in change, understanding the playing field you're competing in is arguably more important, right? So if, uh, you know, if you think of running a 100-meter sprint, you prepare and train for that 100-meter sprint, if you're getting towards the finish line and you find out it's a 400 meter race, your peak performance initiatives were wasted, right? So for, for peak performance, we need to understand the environment we're competing in and what happens when we pull the individual out of a controlled structured environment and we drop them into the oceans of life. Yeah, And that's, that's the big push on, but I think what we're trying to do here, right? Which is how do we notice this change? Sure. And how do we, yeah. How do we, 
adopt it and, and build the mentality of building it. Because as you mentioned, I mean, uh, another example is if you're trying to run, you know, uh, a marathon and this is back in the days and you're, you're, you're using a horse and the other person's using a Ferrari and you didn't know Ferraris existed or you were resistant to that change. I mean, game over, right? So I think it's, um, it's just leveraging the tools that are accessible and going to be exponentially more powerful in this day and age. So talk to us a little bit about the frameworks that you're talking about in the book that allows us to catch these trends more easily. Yeah. And, and this should help us to your point, notice the change while it's happening, right? And you might think you're never going to lose because you have a Ferrari, but if you notice some other guy building a plane, suddenly we have to go across oceans. It's going to change the game a little yeah. bit. So we need to equip ourselves with, like you mentioned, these proper tools to find and understand objective truth. The less connected someone is in, you know, less connected anyone is to the objective truth, the less likely their, their actions and decisions are going to map back to the reality of the world around them and in their futures, meaning the less likely they will make decisions that benefit themselves, their loved ones, ultimately the future of humanity, but ultimately where they want to end up tomorrow. We have created tools, thankfully, to aid in these pursuits, tools like science, um, which allow us to develop theories for how to view and understand the world. Great thing about science, it's also true whether you believe it or not. So it removes a lot of our uh, you know, built-in opinions, which we'll get into shortly here. But yeah. in, the related, in the related surfing theme, big wave surfing has always been the kingdom of those you know, who are never satisfied and wants to push limits and they always want more. And new generations of surfers come in and they push the new boundaries of impossible and they surf bigger waves and this constant evolution and adaptation and growth and progression or why we surf bigger waves every year, we see a similar story with humans, right? As we shift our attention to surfing now, these biggest and baddest waves that humanity has ever faced in terms of disruption, we need to focus on these three surfing requirements, waves, a surfer, and a board. I'll speak to it at a high level, and we can circle back and, and we can click into some of these in more detail, but the wave is ultimately, you know, how do we identify the barrels in our lives that we want to surf in the future. The surfer is how do we improvise so we stay in these barrels. And the surfboard is the foundation we must stand on to best improvise. So think of think of the surfing framework like a compass. It's, it's designed to point in, in a direction. It points north. It isn't a step-by-step, -step, you know, prescriptive guide. It doesn't tell you where to step or how to step or what detours to take or obstacles to take along the journey. It's simply a tool to guide us, to point us in the right direction. So using this tool is less about what we know and more about how we think, mm -hmm. right? So the, the surfing framework's goal is to focus how change is happening in our lives instead of simply relying on chance. We can use this to investigate the future and better understand, you know, the forces that cause change to happen and how to navigate those circumstances. So change is constant. So this framework does need to be flexible enough in a world of great complexity to continually right, adapt and grow and evolve and innovate. At its core, it really challenges us to rethink thought. Much of what we thought about, much of what we think about, I guess, I won't say the word thought twice, is constrained in our past you know, and present social systems and ideologies. We need to stop many of our previous ways of thinking and, and rewire our brains to think faster, more creatively, especially about what's coming next. So yeah. this sort of, you know, this serving framework is a, is a multidisciplinary approach for that reason. Um, and at a very high level, we've got 
the waves, which is the complexity in your life. And you can almost think of this as the Venn diagram. And we'll explain that a little bit. We've got the surfer, which is improvisation. We've got this rational foundation to stand on. And at the intersection where the three of these overlap is where we see byproducts of disruption and innovation. And that's, that's where we want to be. Those are the, you know, the waves we want to get into. So Mm -hmm. let's get into the waves quick. The waves, when I say that we're looking at a specific part of complexity in the system of our lives or organizations. So think of a a vast ocean and all the complexity that goes on in it. Now think more specifically about a wave and more specifically the barrel that forms in that wave. The barrel I'm referring to is a cylindrical area created by the wave breaking, right? The ultimate move in surfing is to position oneself, you know, get barreled inside the barrel while it breaks. That's what this framework identifies in our life and business. And we understand that through complexity sciences. It helps us understand a specific system of complexity, which, which I refer to as the abstract and functional space. And the abstract is where learning and creativity and innovation and growth happens. The functional space is pushes for standardization, formality, structure, performance. And these two systems are essentially very important because we use them to identify a specific time and space when we're feeling a pressure where we evolve and grow and adapt. They help us identify this disruption um, and change. The abstract system, this is carefree. We take risks, we get creative, we dream, we envision our goals. Functional side, we pay bills, taxes, you know, follow laws, save money, plan for retirement, all that boring stuff. Sure. Both systems are in constant competition, right? The problem is we grew up learning to move the system back into the functional space as fast as possible. The function space is linear, right? It's, it's, it's easily understandable and predictable. We learn to find comfort in the functional system and when the functional system is in control because we are in control. We're not comfortable in the middle when we're not in control and in, in this kind of conflict, right? But in this tension, in this, this conflict, this is where disruption and innovation in business and life emerges. And this is the transformation we're after, right? It happens in the barrels of these waves, as we're calling them, residing in the extreme, you know, left of the abstract system is pure chaos, and then pure order operates in the other extreme. You can never transform in the future purely in order or chaos. So the growth, therefore, happens in the middle somewhere, right? So this, sure. this barrel's tension between these two systems is exactly where we want to be, despite how counterintuitive it is. Mm-hmm. The next, you know, the next logical question for that is, well, okay, great, but how do we navigate these barrels of disruption when we lack information or facts or, or, or the data we need to act in the moment? And this is where the surfer comes in, our second pillar, right? Made, made up of improvisational theory. Uh, so now we've got the second part of the surfing framework. It's us, it's the surfer, right? In the book, I use the example of Slater. Why was Kelly Slater the best surfer in the world? He's not a he's not a freak physical specimen, but he had, let's call it surfing sense. I don't know. I don't even know if they call it that in surfing, but you know, you generally get the theme. He could anticipate what was about to happen on the water and react to it faster than the competition. He could gather, process, understand massive amounts of complex information instantaneously. Instead of seeing linear connections of individuals' ways forming, you know he would fluidly improvise all these minor predictions, formations, breakdown, reformations, and patterns he was seeing. I'm not saying he was doing all this on purpose, but this is what was happening, right? And being present 
in the moment, he can use his evolving kind of spatial and temporal relationships amongst his position, his board, the forming waves, the amplitude, the speed of the waves, the other surfers, and that dictates his next thoughts and movements, much like our everyday decisions dictate our next thought and movements. And we see this like a musician playing jazz, you know, Kelly Slater will stick with that example. He uses a loose framework to dictate his next kind of action in real time. And this isn't to say Kelly Slater is not an, an incredibly hard worker and incredibly talented surfer, yeah. but on the, on the world stage competing with all the other best surfers in the world, this is what, what set him apart, right? He could use his decisions and actions to shape the outcomes in his favor, often putting him in the right place, at the right time. You see this everywhere in sports, right? All these, these, highly paid, incredible athletes who always seem to be in the right place at the right time. So to best transcend our complex future, we need to keep our system on tilt through the decisions and actions we make. And it's not enough, unfortunately, to just randomly improvise, right? Like surfing without a surfboard. Understanding our complex world and improvisation and how that works, they're useful if our beliefs and thoughts aligns with the truth of the world, like any model or system yeah, bad info in, bad info out, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So that ultimately leads us into the surfboard, kind of the final part of the framework. It's the solid foundation we stand on that makes surfing possible, right? Rationality in a way is our surfboard. And I'll, I'll go through this quick and then, you know what I mean? We can click into some of it because it's a little yeah. bit long-winded here, but well, well, actually, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just interject before we yeah. go into the surfboard because I one one question that I had that people might be thinking is, you know, when it, when it comes to the surfer improvising, they're seeing the same waves they're seeing and they're, they're repeating the same sort of um, experiences in that it's, it's, they've gone through these, you know, years and years, morning after mornings of doing these same repetitive tasks. Obviously every surf is different. Every wave is different. Every, you know, beach is different, but they're still going through a very similar experience along with sports. You know, I guess one would say that the fourth industrial revolution and these disruptive technologies and advancements that we're about to see has never been done before, as you mentioned initially. And while the analogy makes sense, it seems like these are unprecedented times and introductions of these technologies that almost seems like would be very difficult to see ahead of time. So I'm curious to know, like, what are some of the detailed frameworks that people can use knowing that when you're a surfer, you're going through these repetitive things, but with these technologies, we've never seen these before. It's just not something the way human brain is wired to, to see ahead of time. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think Once I get through the rationality part, just really quick, we can come back and give like a high level, I don't know, I'll give it like a, a cheat sheet version of like the things we want to look for. Because to answer your question, you're exactly right. This isn't like we're running another 100 meter race, but how about it's it's this race. You don't actually know what the finish line is going to be. It could be 100 meter, or it could be a thousand meter race. You just have to train. We've never, we don't know how to train for that, right? right? But we would train, we definitely would train differently than 100 meters. We know that for sure. Um, right. So we'd be hedging our bets. So it's more like big wave surfing in that regards, right? We, 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 big wave surfers hunt down the big waves, right? We need to hunt down these rogue waves. We're never going to know exactly when and where they're going to emerge, but we have through this, you know, framework and complexity science, we have ideas of where they're going to emerge. 
So if yeah. I want to go after those waves, I want to put myself into a position of where I believe the highest potential of them emerging is versus I can hang out and I can tell you right now, you can go to places where I tell you there are never going to be any waves. I can tell you to focus on areas of your development and where you want to go later in life where there's never, you know, it's not going to be destruction. It's going to be dying. Right. So we do understand a right. bit of that. So that's a bit of the, uh, the rogue waves analogy, I guess, because we need to be yeah. a bit more, you know, to your point, not, not, not structured in a way, but we need to hunt down those big ones. Um, but it's not enough. I guess the, the point I was trying to make is it's not enough just to know where the waves are and then say, I'm going to get in there and improvise because if I don't have a surfboard and I'm trying to do that with a wakeboard, it's just not going to end up well for me. Right. Um, so exactly. Yeah. There's basics, I guess, like you, you don't want to be on a couch eating Doritos all day. If you're about to go into a surfing competition, like there's basics you want to do to best optimize your success. Exactly. And, and this is the harder part because we look inwards at ourselves, right? Our decisions define who we are and ultimately what we become. And the emergence of all these cumulative decisions ultimately define the future of humanity, as extreme as that sounds. So we, we better be making good decisions, I guess. The way we think and the beliefs we hold affect our choices, which affect our actions and how we improvise. So with this influx like you mentioned, of continuously changing information, how do we filter through all of it to make the best decisions? And that's this final pillar of the surfing framework helps us do exactly that, right? How do we navigate the complexity to improvise our way through life and business? You know, we need to understand our decisions, shortcomings, and why some of those are so significant. Mm -hmm. And it is the hardest part. It, It forces us to look inwards at ourselves, which obviously none of us like to do, but you know, we, we have errors in our mental architecture and, and there's a tons of great research and books on that. And we're learning more about it every day. Our brain is the only tool we have to measure and understand the world. Ultimately, our brain creates other tools that we can do it in more detail with, but it's ultimately coming from our brain. And we use this to calibrate the accuracy of our beliefs against the realities of the world. Unfortunately, our brain isn't calibrated to the realities around us, these shortcomings manifest in, in cognitive biases. A cognitive bias is a systematic error in the way we think. A cognitive bias is different than a random error. People use them interchangeably, but they're not the same, right? A random, random error is usually brought in by ignorance or lack of knowledge. A cognitive bias skews the way we think to less accurately map to the path. It, it, you know, worse yet, being aware of these biases don't even always resolve them, right? Humans are not rational, but thankfully we're, I think the famous saying is we're predictably irrational, meaning we recognize and reduce and we can overcome many of our biases. I realize this is not, not an easy thing to do. We have a lot to learn, but sure. we know many of the patterns that lead us astray. Humans are the only race on earth capable of thinking about thinking. And if we understand these flaws in our own minds and how it maps to reality, we can reflect on them and correct for these errors, right? We know that our brain is fraud. It distorts our reality. That fact makes us different than all other species on the planets. Knowing these cognitive biases means we can apply second order corrections. That is, you know, a real high level explanation of that. That is by no means perfect, but it's kind of the best we've got. And we're still learning about cognitive biases all the time. And there's tons of biases and everyone makes us wholly irrational. Yet many of these mistakes we make, you know, are are not really biases, right? We need to look inwards and deeper, a deeper level than our bias. And we've got examples of this kind of all around us. Um, I'll give a quick example to help 
yeah. make make this all make sense because I'm probably talking a bit a little high level, but we, you know, you, me, anyone, we've 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 all wondered why we see something on social media possibly, right? That we can't believe isn't main mainstream reporting on it, right? We might even feel the need to reshare it or post it ourselves or so people can know the truth. Um, chances are we're probably falling victim to our confirmation bias, right? We're, we're paying attention to news stories or worse social media posts that confirm many of our existing opinions. We're all guilty of this, right? Confirmation bias is this tendency to search for, interpret, favor, recall information that confirms our prior beliefs. Obviously on its own, very damaging. It's lethal with the virility of social media nowadays. Yeah. False information on social media is also driven by algorithmic targeting, and we understand some of that more and more. And it does have a drastic impact on society functions, right? By distorting evidence-based thinking and decision-making, but it's not all bias. Social media in this example is a, is a personal extension of oneself, right? Therefore, Sean, you debunking me with my misinformation, with the utmost, you know, sensitivity and polish and empathy will instinctively still often enrage me or the individual who's been duped, right? It tends to make the individual tighten up on their grasp of the pseudoscience evidence. Yeah. And that reaction is not a bias. That, that's an error in our belief. That's a newly formed belief that is wrong and does not accurately map back to the reality of the world. Now, biases play a large part into kicking that off. But ultimately, what I'm saying when I go a bit deeper is, you know, for a belief to be correct, we have to anticipate its experience in our world. Right now, we're seeing all kinds of things, obviously, our you know, societies and governments and science itself is under attack, but we can't experience everything directly. Most of what we know comes from general understanding. I look at you at this screen and I see you, right? I believe I'm speaking with you. However, I do not see the atoms that make up my monitor, even though the atoms are in fact there. This is indirect experience. Most of the things we can anticipate are caused by what we cannot see or directly experience, if correct, our beliefs accurately map back and allow us to understand the world in which we reside. The reality is a lot of people don't have the correct beliefs. They have improper beliefs, right? A lot of these beliefs do not accurately, you know, describe the world. Oh, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Yeah. Unless it's wrong, then you're not entitled to it. Um, and, you know, I think the biggest difference from a proper belief, which requires observation, right? It's open to updating, when encountering new evidence, you know, we see this sometimes, but even being right does not mean your beliefs are correct, right? If you believe, you know, the winning lottery ticket, when you pick your nose and that number wins, it doesn't mean your nose picking belief was correct. Latent yeah. lies, misinformation, they don't self-destruct if you post them. It'd be nice if they did, but they don't. You know, we have many examples of false belief problems in our histories and societies and cultures around the world. And we've, Kind of changed and evolved and adapt them, but you know, and then some 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 parts of us haven't. And you know, extreme examples are are easier here, but we see this subtle examples as well. You know, many years ago, you had a severe ache in your mouth or your head. You'd pray or you'd go see a fairy or a witch or someone you believe would cure your pain. Sometimes it worked. The other times you died. Well, thanks to science, we now have accurate beliefs. If we simply remove the wisdom teeth, we clean the infected area, and people no longer have to die from impacted molars, right? The more we shift away from made-up, inaccurate beliefs towards accurate beliefs, the more accurately we can anticipate what will happen in the real world. 
how do we know what's accurate? Like that seems to be a very difficult thing these days with, you know, just the amount of fake news, quote unquote, that is spreading all across and, and, you know, even just speaking to things around social media, which is so such a large part of people's lives. And most people's self-identity is just based on how many followers they have and their lives around social media. But the algorithms that are feeding these, you know, news feeds are really just personalized. I mean, at one point I did an experiment where, you know, I went on YouTube and I just, I followed, you know, uh, especially during the elections, I followed, you know, Fox News and I followed, you know, uh, all of these different outlets on, on, on the right side. And then, you know, obviously on the left side, I follow those as well. And just the amount of disparity and the, the contrast of information that was being shared around the same topic really was just mind boggling. And I'm sure you, you obviously know about this as well, but like, how do we in this day and age really fight against the trillions of dollars that in, are being spent on these algorithms designed to trick us in many ways? Yeah. So at a high level, we have the surfing framework. It's three steps. Each step has four pieces in it. And I'm going to, run through this quick. And then that last one, I think we'll jump into and kind of talk a little bit more on the how, right? The rationality part. It's easy to say that, like I just ripped it out there. Like we should all just be rational, but how do we actually do that? Uh, So the first one is we always look for barrels. And what I mean for that is like, we always look for that, that uncomfortable space that's counterintuitive, right? We improvise to keep ourselves in the barrels and we use our surfboard as our rational foundation. So the first one, look for barrels. There are specific things we want to look for. Not all pressure means you're in a barrel. There are toxic situations you should just get out of, right? So in life, in barrel, and same within businesses, there's four components of pressure we look for, right? A new and novel solution when you're forced in that, when you're doing a new partnership or a new relationship, healthy conflicting perspectives, which takes an amount of EQ to take part in, and then independence of working together as the only option for success. If you're, if you're in those situations, those are good pressures. That's where we want to be. The next step we want to make sure we're improvising. That's, you know, improvisational theories in there, high level four principles of improvisation, spontaneity. Go with your gut. This is a bit counterintuitive, but just do it. The classic say yes and, right? Always accepting of ideas, either counter or build off them. Don't shut them down. That's counterintuitive, but that's the way to do it. Always be listening. We all think we're great listeners, but we're not. Um, And leverage those around you. So those first two steps, that's step one, step two. The third step, which is what you're asking me about, um, is how do we use the surfboard, right? So it's easy for me to sit here and say, you should be aware of cognitive biases. You you know, you, you should... Notice your biases. You should be aware of rational beliefs and understand fake beliefs. And, you know, you should let facts change your mind. And, you know, you should understand the strengths and weaknesses of, you know, machine and human decisions. But when we get into that final part, which you're asking me is how, how do we do it? We, we should be asking ourselves, what are our beliefs and how well do they map around to the world around us. And that's what I mean. This is the hardest part. So it's just you at this point. You don't have to worry about who you're impressing, but you've got to challenge yourself. And you don't ask what you should believe. Instead, focus on what you should anticipate. Beliefs should be questioned. And and they should flow from questions of anticipation. I think questioning beliefs starts by guessing your anticipation. Say, you know, the example I think I chat with is, you know, you and me base jump off a cliff, right? How quickly do you anticipate we hit the ground? How fast do people fall? Before we jump off the cliff, 
I can say we're a, a thousand meters up, right? And, you know, you take a rock, you throw the rock, you watch it fall, you check your clock and you say, well, I actually think we're about 300 meters. You're, you're, you're checking what I, I said, instead of taking it for granted and you're using some, some science you can anticipate, right? To, to map it back to the real world. I can, if my beliefs are not actually modeled to the anticipation that we just experienced there, I should throw it out and move on. Right? This is obviously easier than it sounds, and like we should just all have rational beliefs, but since people don't put much thought into where many of their beliefs come from, this is a belief error, right? You know, so <laughs> we both jump off. I'm entitled to my own opinion. Well, I'm not going to pull my shoot in time, and I'm going to die. So belief errors re- reveal a deeper problem. Many beliefs only require people to commit to efforts of self-deception to overlook the belief in belief. And what I mean is when something is believed for generations, for example, it sticks without question, right? You know, no one's ever thought to question it for some reason, right? Some of these concepts have been disproven and many of them have changed, but they're still not accurate, right? We're still persuading children at a young age to kind of belief in beliefs. And, you know, this also trains in many ways why facts don't change our minds. So a long-winded way to get to your question on why don't things like facts change our mind, right? How are we rational and you know, I feel bad for anyone named Karen because they've kind of get, been given this little mm-hmm. stigma, right? But how do we deal with misinformation that, you know, I think in the book, I use the example our Aunt Karen regularly posts on social media. And to your point, all parts of the world, both sides, right and left, you know, have their dogmatic extremes. Social media is this incredible amplifier of misinformation, fake news, you know, but it's not okay to spread beliefs built on bad information, we obviously know that you jump off a cliff, you have a, you know, you don't believe in gravity, you're, you're still going to die. You, you know, rape and kill someone, you go to jail. You may not believe in science and gravity, and you may not believe in the laws of rape and murder, but again, it doesn't matter. Those are wrong beliefs, right? And these are extreme examples, but somewhere along the spectrum of acceptance in incorrect beliefs, we, it fades, and, and it is proportional to governance, right? Governance directly affects the speed of false beliefs that are published. One of the spectrum, we have peer-reviewed research. It's long, it's rigorous, it's expensive, but it removes most of the bias. It's great. The problem is it's too slow. We've got media who sits in the middle. They're still trying to be fastest of the punch. You, you named a few. I find it a bit easier. You can kind of see who biases where a little bit. And there are some investigative researchers that are very, you know, and journalists that are very good still, but still slow. And then you've got social media, right? It's fast. It's free. The problem is uh, it's usually pretty inaccurate. So, Well, social media seems to be the big one. And it's right. even the news has been melded into social media. Like I, I don't know a lot of people that go to these websites or watches TV. Like a lot of the news feeds are just, the news is being fed through social media and they're the ones that have all of these data points that seems to be personalizing the decisions. And it's the reason why we're in a bubble, right? It's, you know, we are certainly in this information bubble that is very hard to escape unless you, you know, are completely off grid and, and even then you're in your own little bubble. So it's almost like we're just living these tiny little bubbles online and, um, yeah, I mean, well, that and, seems to be the key. Yeah, and it's in in your your bang on, but we also are aware of it. So we are aware that we can try to correct ourselves for it. 
if if we're thinking like that, right? When we see misinformation, we do want to correct it. And that is that comes that's that's not anything new. That's it was called the deficit model in, in research in the past, right? The problem with the deficit model, the next steps assume rational a rational person will consider new information and change their beliefs depending on the presented strength and accuracy. Yeah. And this is where, you know, our saying, you know, knowledge is power comes from, but the processes and the problem, the people are, right. If you could simply correct misinformation and facts, you know, if a fake news and propaganda and it would just disappear, that would be great. You know, the deficit model, the problem is, is us. It's, it's the person and it's, it's what we're attacking. Right. And even when you do change it, the research shows that people tend to trend back to the norm, to your point, because they're kind of stuck in this, this bubble, right? And, you know, or, or so is it on us to correct them, right? And, you know, again, are we even right? You know, and even if you do try to go and correct good old Aunt Karen, right? It's, you know, at this point, you know, you're, you're challenging these individuals share and spread untrue stories. Okay, I get all that, right? This re- this aligns this news that they're spreading aligns with how they see themselves in the world. And when they open their social media feeds and they see an individual sharing a post, you know, a fake political news, let's say their confirmation bias blinds them and they attempt to reinforce their existing perspective. At this point, fact checking your friends, your connections, usually like an unfriending or an unfollowing or, you know, worse yet, you know, you're, Good old Aunt Karen goes off the deep end and has a meltdown because even if we fact check these people with the best of intentions, right? We use Aunt Karen as our example. She sees it as an attack on the core of her identity. To her, you're not presenting facts and data, but you're asking her to change how she sees herself as a person. In fact, obviously fact checking her isn't just you presenting new information, right? You're starting like a deeply personal fight Mm -hmm. not taking an objective debate you're and you're doing it online which isn't public even though no one follows aunt karen and no one reads that that's the feeling right which is far different from shutting her down alone in person so your aunt karen is biasing her real world decisions and actions and beliefs and when you fact check it presents a real emotional argument to these people that challenges and threatens the very meaning of who they believe they are and yeah so how how do we overcome that i guess is like i mean it just comes down to I guess, helping people be more open-minded and to separate these beliefs and facts that they have about that they're hearing from the media from who they are as individuals. And I think in some sense, a lot of the people that are listening will probably already feel that way. Um, so I guess like what, what would be, for, for the people that already feel that way and are able to change their minds, I mean, what, what are the what are the next steps that they would need to do to make sure they're most prepared? Yeah. And I guess one question I challenge is, I think this is, it's not about changing other people's minds as much as changing your minds. Even when we think we are open to changing our minds, are we really though, do we really go that extra little bit or do we think I'm going to change my mind? We read, we read this, let's say the other side article, right? We see this first pace. We see this first point that we know is factually wrong and we throw it up we shut down the whole argument or do we read the whole thing and take the meaning of really what they're trying to say or do we stop at this you know well clearly if this one point is wrong the whole thing is wrong okay maybe that one reference is wrong it's garbage maybe the one point is wrong but maybe the whole article they're saying does make sense so i think the first one is not so much how do we change others but 
you know, again, looking back in at ourselves and how do we change ourselves? I think more importantly, where it's really important to do this and ultimately dogmatic extreme right and left, say political views, they're never going to change their mind. They're not going to be rational. Don't waste your time on things you can't change, right? doesn't matter. I would say move on, don't even do that. Where we can use it ourselves, I think, is when we see this intersection in our surfing framework, when we have all these three overlapping areas, right? So when I'm in this situation where there is a need for a new and novel idea, like I mentioned, right? I don't really know how to get in there. So I can't, I can't pre-plan and I'm going to have to improvise. Well, now I'm really going to make sure that I want to use a surfboard when I'm doing that, right? I can tell myself like a wakeboard is just as great as a surfboard, just surf on that, but it's not. So I've really got to re-challenge myself to add second order corrections. And again, this is going to sound really simple because sometimes we look for really big complex solutions, but I'm going to have to double check my cognitive biases and work to notice these. I'm going to have to think through when I see something and it feels good. And I tell myself, damn it, I'm right again. I'm really good. Am I checking myself? And and really it's, this is only within us. No one else is listening to me do this, but am I challenging myself to see how I'm wrong and how I'm most likely wrong. Right. And when I say rational beliefs, well, you know, knowing that biases feed into that, right. Am I understanding the fake beliefs, right. Or the belief errors. And if, I'm right in my belief, and I should be able to disprove and anticipate how the other beliefs are wrong. And we don't always do that either. We just say, man, I picked my nose and I won the winning lottery. I clearly know how to win the winning lottery. You just pick your nose. That's a funny example, but in life, we do all these little micro things, right? 90% of our daily decisions are improvisational, they're not planned out. So if when we're when we're challenging ourselves to rethink each one of these steps, you know, it, it sounds really simple, but letting facts change your mind, you know, it's... I, it's harder than you think, you know, I, I, I had a great example, you know, and I'm, you know, trying to get healthier. And I'm like, yeah, you know what, when I, when I have a couple of beers before bed, you know, I just, I sleep better. Right. And my wife sits here and goes, no, you don't. Here's the science. Here's the facts. Here's the thing. And, you know, I can, I, I've done this study myself. I'm like, look, you know, the 10 times I drank, I slept great. And the times I didn't, I didn't sleep that great. It doesn't matter that I just prove that to myself. I have to be rational enough to let these facts change my mind. Sure. Right. And we're not as good at that ultimately as we think we are. Um, How do we train and- ourselves to do that? Are there books? Are there frameworks? Are, what, what are some of the things that you've done to train your own uh, and be aware of more of your cognitive biases? Yeah. So I I think there are, I think the biggest thing is, you know, and and we don't have the time to unfortunately rip through too much of it. And it's clearly a passion of mine. I'd love to talk about it all days, (laughs) but you know, there is the art of understanding complexity. When I understand complexity, there are certain areas where I will put more effort in. And the reason I put more effort in now it's counterintuitive, but it's, it's this pressure. It almost makes me feel uncomfortable. And to your point, pressure is real and perceived right? Like if I think my boss is going to fire me, I'm going to push myself to go get a new job and start interviewing. That might not be true. None of that might be true, but perceived matters, right? So I need to, to maybe check myself and think, you know, before I go run off and do all this other stuff, is my boss really going to fire me? Right. And so that's an example of everyday things, but we see it in the media, right? Little things we say make us make us think we should go do that. Right. And, and then, but, but then we never challenged that again. We spent all the other time doing this in between. Right. And, and you do need to do it. And I do think, you know, 
training the brain and the mindfulness and clearing the brain and all these kind of things to your point is, is more like the blueprint and, you know, getting into flow and, you know, some of the other great people you've had on have like, you know, the very specifics of that. What I'm trying to paint here is like the arena you're running into isn't a structured 100 meter or 400 meter race. It's an always changing race. So what you want to do is like not fully sprint, but you want to be able to speed up and slow down, but you don't want to gas out. You also don't want to go at marathon race. If you're never, you know, if the race does end on you. So understanding where the pressure is, I think is one thing you really have to look for. The art of improvisation sounds corny. Obviously we grew up being told not to wing it, but you know, we should get comfortable on that and you should practice spontaneity. Like going with your gut is an anti thing to do, but you know, we need to do it in all reality. And we need to yeah. think about when we're doing it. And it doesn't mean don't go for it, but after rechallenge and think if it's right, you know, the yes end, always accepting of ideas. Like that's, we don't see this. So if, if I'm going to give an example here, but if someone on the one end of the right end of the political spectrum says something, someone on the left end doesn't say yes. And they say mm-hmm. no, right. Automatically it should be yes. And because you can build on that and counter it, or you can, you, you can, you can build on it and just continue building on it. And you don't really know until you go there, right? Like we don't, you don't, you won't develop these amazing things in an ever changing landscape unless you let yourself go with it. And that permission to let yourself go and not be in control is counterintuitive the entire way we were raised right um at least in the west here and then we're not good listeners obviously leveraging around you but i think you know what are things you can do with your cognitive bias i think the the very first step is and i walk through a lot more examples in the books is you know there are so many great studies that even when you think you're right you're probably not right so knowing this that i'm not always right and it's okay not to be right if i'm open to considering how to get better and not get right that that's not very uncomfortable, which is a which is the pressure we look for, right? This is a barrel of wave in our life, and that's how we get better. When I'm when I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging my beliefs, and it's you know, and again, it's it, you know, I, I unpacked it in 360 pages in the book, so it's hard to get into too many examples here. Yeah, yeah, right? but we can break it down. You know what I mean? Like facts change in your mind. It's it sounds so easy, but if you think about it, it's happening all around you. And when you start to look for those things, you see them. So a great example is. Say you're gonna you're gonna buy a car and you're gonna buy a Tesla, a Model Three Tesla. That sounds great. You're looking about the Tesla. You're looking into it. You put your down payment. You know what I mean. And the car's coming. You'll suddenly notice Model Threes everywhere on the road. It's this weird phenomenon, but you will notice it everywhere. And you'll you'll literally all pretty much say to yourself, "Man, I never knew there were so many Model Threes." You are looking for these things. This surfing framework highlights them, so we look for them. Otherwise, if you don't, and if I took a someone who had just bought a Model 3 and someone who had, doesn't care about Tesla cars, they will have very different answers on how many Teslas they see on the road because sure. you just don't notice the things you're not looking for. So this kind of really, of all the noise we have, here are the three steps we need to look for and the four bullets in each one of these steps we need to focus on. So that's a, a vague-ish answer, but I think it kind of gets the, the, the point a little bit across on um, what we need to be looking for. Got it. Got it. I mean, if you were to advise someone in university or someone that's just kind of starting out in their careers in terms of the skill sets and kind of the, the, the major things that they should really master in terms of their skill sets to really thrive in the next decade or two, you know, what would some of those be? Yeah. You know, um, you know, and I'm sure McGill for you and Queens for me will hate this when I say this as, you know, academic institutions, but the value of academia is 
learning. It teaches learning how to learn. And that's the tool you need. Um, mm. You don't need so much to focus on memorizing your thermodynamics or differential equations or any of that fun stuff. You know, now you might use it in the short term, but you can always reaccess those those memories and patterns and things through this little thing we have now called the internet, which is great. Um, so, you know, don't spend so much brain power, but like challenge yourself to constantly able to rethink, right? And, and creativity is a big one that we don't specifically teach because it's hard, but we're starting to understand it, but that's incredibly important, right? And I think to yeah. your point, you said it way back at the start, you know, being more open. Now we all say we need to be more open, but it's a, that's a very hard exercise to constantly challenge and think of ourselves on how we need to be more open. So I think that the learning to learn, I think the concept that we have brains and, you know, the fact that we're capable of thinking about thinking, we can reapply that second order corrections all over the place. And that is honestly the most important thing I think you can take from from school, right? And I think, you know, schools are different now and you can get a lot of stuff that's that's online, which is great and it allows you to do it possibly while you're working. And then there's also incredible value of the interactions and a lot of the personal stuff. If you talk to most people about what they, you know, learn best about at school, it's usually not some, you know, math equation or um, it's, it's, it's some of the relationships they had, right? And I think that's the part we really, we really, really forget. We, we do have linear minds in this exponential world. We have tools, which I'm trying to use here to bridge and allow us to look a little bit further, but all these exponential technologies and opportunities have, you know, incredible opportunities packaged up within them, right? Whether it's this automation and smart car or something as crazy as the internet. And those are all coming, but you have to be open to being uncomfortable to get there. You have to be open to giving up some control. And I don't mean control as in like, you know, Go, go paddle out in suicidal waves or like give up control and sit in the middle of nowhere. You need the knowledge and understand kind of where to go, where to shape mm -hmm. yourself. And that, that part is, is, you know, human interaction is always in our foreseeable future. Let's say for now is always going to be the most important because humans and machines for as far as we can see into the future are more powerful than either alone. So you have to know, you know, a great example is like, it's easy to write a bullet in there and say, remember the strengths and weaknesses of machines and human decisions. But one example of that would be when it comes to predictive decisions, predicting something like, unfortunately we hate this machines are better. They're just better than us. When it comes to predicting the quality of wine, unfortunately that comes down to data, temperature, oil, rain levels, what's well, so oil, um, oil in the sand, all, all that kind of stuff. My, my French ancestors would kill me right now, but like the best wine kind of sewer predictor isn't going to do as well as data is. But the reality is there's so much of what we do that isn't predictive because we don't know where it's going to go. And that's where we come in. And when we can augment both of these, where I can definitely leverage and understand, you know, which machine data models I should be using and which AI and algorithms I should use and when I should believe and trust in myself, that helps us a lot, right? Versus people who just blindly data-driven everything. Well, that doesn't help yeah. either, but you also just can't wing everything. Like when, when, people, when I say improvisation, you know, old executives now, they're like, yeah, exactly. See, I go with my gut. I know everything. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not right either. <laughs> yeah. It's really that, yeah. that blending. Definitely. Definitely. Cool. I think that's a good way to close it off here, Eric. Uh, where can people find out more about you and the book, of course, Surfing Rogue Waves? Um, where would you want to point people to for learning more about you, your story, the book itself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my website is ericpb.me, E-R-I-C-P-B dot M-E. 
And the book's available at all leading retailers, uh, Barnes and Nobles, Chapters Indigo, Walmart, Target, and obviously Amazon. Okay, hopefully those aren't sold out yet. No, <laughs> they they're back. They're, they're back before. They're back up and running now, so we, we can Good. get back after it. Love it, love it. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate your time here, and um, thanks for so you know, all the thoughtful insights, obviously. And hopefully, people can check out the book and and learn more about what's to come because it's it's coming, right? It's, it's inevitable. Right. Surfs up. Surfs up. <laughs> thanks, John. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.